Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast. I'm Dr. Mark White, and today I will be discussing a test we use that solves a problem, how to quantify an important aspect of cervical spine instability. In our previous episode, I discussed what we mean by joint stability. A quick reminder, our working definition is a stable joint moves or remains stationary in a task-dependent manner without incurring injury. Our topic today will address the stationary component of stability. Inherent in this conceptualization as applied to the cervical spine are a few assumptions, one of which is this. Bilaterally symmetrical movements of the upper extremities impose actions on a stable and stationary cervical spine that stimulate complementary cervical spine muscle group contractions equally and proportionally in response to the upper extremity movement. That's a mouthful to say, but what it means is that when the arms move, muscle action is stimulated around the cervical spine. That should not be surprising. Some of the muscles involved in moving the arms attach to the cervical spine via intermediate connections to the scapula and additional structures that share other attachments, like the ribs and clavicle. This activity should be symmetrical if the movements are. This is also an example of reactive stabilization effects, which are non-volitional, autostabilizing efforts produced by the body in response to potentially destabilizing forces. That's the natural state of being, good old homeostasis. And that's extremely helpful to know. In general, we are wired for symmetry until adapted otherwise. Here's how that works for us clinically. During our examination of patients with cervical spine disorders, we test them in sitting and in supine positioning by palpating activation of the sternocleidomastoids and scalenes. We test two movements. In sitting, we test the reaction of these muscles during bilateral shoulder flexion and again with bilateral shoulder abduction. Assuming the patient can complete the motions pain-free, or at least with enough active range of motion symmetrically and pain-free that we can get a reading. Frequently, we find asymmetric firing of the muscles. We then repeat the testing in supine by having the patient perform bilateral shoulder flexion, then bilateral horizontal shoulder abduction, which looks like a wide clapping motion with elbow straight. Most of the time, what we discover in doing this is that the normal and expected symmetry of motor activation is broken. Motor control insufficiency, MCI, is expressed in reduced firing of, most of the time, the scalenes on the symptomatic side or the side with predominant symptoms. Sometimes there is a global insufficiency that results in trembling in the neck and arms, especially during the supine bilateral horizontal shoulder abduction movement. We find this consistently across a number of pathologies. We interpret this as motor function inhibition related to the underlying injury process. Many things can cause this, so it is an associated finding. It may occur in some instances for reasons other than identifiable local pathology, such as a primary cause that is centrally located, but that's another discussion. So, now that we have identified an asymmetry in motor firing pattern, what do we do with the information? How do we make this quantifiable? Well, very simply, we count repetitions and document our observed slash palpated findings. 
An example of this is from a patient I saw who fell at home from a countertop in her bathroom and struck her head on the nearby toilet seat. She suffered a concussion and multiple ligament sprains to one side of her cervical spine and facet compression injuries on the opposite side of her cervical spine. Daily serial testing revealed in supine a flexion movement error event, that's the palpable lack of firing on the ligament sprain side of her C-spine, at a rate of 50% compared to the opposite side. With supine bilateral shoulder horizontal abduction, the straight arm clapping motion, her motor insufficiency slash lack of firing was a much more profound 80%. So, with shoulder flexion, the complementary muscles on the sprain side, the scalenes, fired only 5 times out of 10 reps, compared to the opposite side that reliably activated every time. With a clapping motion, the complementary muscles only fired twice in 10 reps. The opposite side fired reliably every single time. For additional resolution, we can add to this an estimate of the magnitude of the activation on a 5-point scale. 0 equals no palpably detectable motor activation, 1 equals weak, 2 equals moderate, 3 equals strong, and 4 is classified as normalized. We say normalized because of the limitations of palpation findings. This needs to be paired with a different objective measure of actual force production, or EMG testing, to clarify the absolute magnitude of muscular activation if so desired. This patient recovered, and during a recovery, the motor control deficits resolved. The MCI was useful as a tracking variable to monitor change. Note that this method of testing gives us a way to objectify in the clinic without use of specialized equipment an important finding associated with cervical spine instability, the acquired motor control insufficiency. The muscles are not able to do their job to produce and control motion, attenuate loads, and allow purposeful movement. This is an example of an acquired motor instability resulting from structural instability of cervical spine ligaments. The main takeaway from today's talk, there are several, but the main takeaways about this important cervical spine instability sign are, one, motor control insufficiency or MCI, is an associated functional instability that may result from a precursor structural instability. That's the injury. And two, this instability sign can be quantified. How it is quantified is as follows. First, frequency in terms of a percentage of normal activation, i.e. 20% of normal, 50% of normal, etc. And magnitude in terms of estimated activation level relative to normal. That's the use of the five-point grading scale. So, that concludes our talk for now. Thanks for listening. And as always, may you and your patients be well. That's all for today.